One of the things I do each week is search for illustrations to use in a sermon. Some sermons don't need as many illustrations because the text itself is full of illustrations and the ideas captivate us in different ways, but others, illustrations can help drive home points to us out of the text. They're not more important than the text. I don't ever intend them to be remembered over the text itself. But in searching for those, since COVID, you can imagine that there is a plethora of illustrations tied directly to COVID. For life has changed and things are different now. And people are finding ways to illustrate their sermons from COVID. And so much so that sometimes that's the only kind of illustration I can find. And I try to stay away from those. However... This morning, I read a couple, or for this morning, I read a couple of stories that fit so well with our text, so well with our text that we have guaranteed to us perfect peace in our Savior, and that we have perfect peace, and in a world that's as wacky as ours, peace seems elusive, and a couple of stories illustrate that. I read one story about a gym in Houston who is offered all these new exercise classes because people don't want to come and have stress in their workouts. They have enough stress in their life. See, one of the things that COVID did was for many of us, it caused us to be very comfortable not doing as much, not having as much relationship, uh, conversation with other people. Our jobs changed quite a bit. And so to get back into the swing of things, we go back into stressful situations when people have to go back to the workplace and they go back to the gyms and they go back to their activities. Well, one of the, the activities at the gym, gym in Houston and all of the gyms that they have in Houston, these classes are filling up like crazy where they just go and they lay on the floor on a pillow with soft music. And that's their exercise. One participant said his workout reminds him of a preschool nap time. He lies on a mat with pillows in a dimly lit room and follows an instructor through a series of gentle stretches while calming music plays. Aptly named Surrender, the hour-long class in his Houston gym has been packed. So they go to the gym so that they can find peace because their life has no peace. They need human orchestration to find that peace. And the same kind of thing in uh, the, the way our smartphones and our tablets and our computers have overtaken our lives and did, did so much more in COVID when relationships tended to take a back seat. In Seoul, South Korea, there's a place called the Green Lab, and patrons pay for time slots to simply sit and do nothing. You caught that, right? They pay for time slots to sit and do nothing. It requires that no one is allowed to speak and all phones be turned off. A large glass window looks out onto a green forest and diffusers around the cafe release pleasing aromas. And every day, the three time slots are completely booked. One customer said this, I've been so tired and I don't even have time to space out. After work, I go home and I have to do homework or housework, and then I barely have 30 minutes to an hour before I need to sleep. I spend that time on my phone, so with a space like this, I can actually focus on taking a break. So she's buying time in a place to find peace. And that's the world we live in. We live in a world that constantly searches for peace. But the way the world defines peace is that peace is the absence of conflict. 
That, that's the way the world, if, if I can just get the conflict out of my life, I'll be at peace. If I can do what I want, I'll be at peace. And they miss out on such sweetness and completeness as what the Bible says peace is through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, Isaiah's time was no different. Isaiah's time was absolutely no different. You remember that in through the time of the prophets, there were even leaders in Israel saying, peace, peace, when they should have been saying peace. They should have been saying that at all because God was afoot and God was moving in judgment, but they refused to see that because all they wanted to do was say, peace, peace. We live in Jerusalem. This is God's place. We're safe here. This is okay. Well, Isaiah wants the people of his day to know you are safe there, but not because it's a piece of real estate. It's because that's where God dwells and that's where his people dwell. And there will come a day where the city of man will be destroyed and the city of God will be elevated and the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdom of our God. And that, when that day comes, we will experience the peace, the perfect peace, as the text says, peace, peace. That's what we will experience in that day. But the beauty of it is when we are in Christ, we can experience a foretaste, experience a foretaste of that now. It just depends on whether you and I are willing to order our life to that direction. It's available. And we don't have to go to a gym to box out time or the green lab to go box out time. It's available in Christ. Isaiah wants us to know that. And that's something that makes me want to listen to Isaiah, doesn't it you? Do you seek that peace? Do you know it's there, but every day seems to be peaceless? Every day peace seems to be further away? From whatever reasons, I can name them all that might hit in your uh, wheelhouse of what things cause you stress, what things cause you to lose peace, but Jesus came to give us peace. And Isaiah wants us to know that speaking 700 years before Christ, as Ron um, so richly reminded us this morning. Peace is ours. Are you willing to order your life to experience it? Let's stand together and turn to Isaiah 26. We're in this section of 24 through 27 where we have these pictures of what is to come. Most of the pictures are looking forward to the time that Christ returns when everything is consummated. Most of the pictures are reminding us the difference between the city of, of man, this, this evil city, the city that's against God, that's lifted up in Isaiah, and especially in this section as being the amalgamation of all the enemies of God in their systems, but also holding forth to us the city of God the perfection of the city of God. We've seen this already in chapter 2. We've seen uh, different pictures of it already in Isaiah, like in chapter 5, where the vineyard does not produce the fruit that God planted it to produce. And now we're seeing where God is headed, what God is doing. And since he's still heading in that way and doing that thing, it affects us. And next week on Christmas, we'll stay in Isaiah because chapter 27 is a message that reminds us of what Christ has done to provide access into that city. Isaiah 26, beginning in verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace 
whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in Yahweh forever, for Yahweh, God, is an everlasting rock. Literally, Yah, Yahweh, is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, cast it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of righteousness. In the path of your judgments, O Yahweh, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desires of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of the uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of Yahweh. O Yahweh, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. O Yahweh, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Yahweh, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are the dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Yahweh. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Yahweh, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Yahweh. We were pregnant. We writhed but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, Enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, Yahweh is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. And in that day, Yahweh with his hard and great and strong sword <clears throat> will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So we have quite a text before us, don't we? It's an amazing text. Some of these verses you know, some of these verses you have memorized already. I went ahead and read through 27.1 because I think that is probably connected to 20 and 21 of chapter 26. And we'll pick up with verse 2 next week in chapter 27. 
But what I want us to see is right from the beginning, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And there's debate over how far the song actually goes. Does it go through verse 4? Does it go through verse 6? Does it go through verse um, 18? Does it go through the end of the chapter? I put it all under the heading of a song, of a song because I think when we read the Psalter, we see that there are songs of lament and there are songs of calling for God's vengeance. There are songs of dependence. And so I'm putting it all under the, 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 the uh, title of a song. And so we are shown three verses of a song sung by God's people who trust in him while waiting for their strong city of salvation. Three verses of a song sung by God's people who trust in him while waiting for their strong city of salvation. Now, I've given a lot away right in that proposition statement. Remember last week we talked a lot about waiting, did we not, being patient and waiting. And we went through the scriptures and found different ways that the Bible used the term wait and things we were doing while we were waiting. Well, Isaiah wants to focus us as well on waiting And we look at this so clearly between the advents, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, because God is always exercising his judgment. He is always making decisions and acting. And we are people who walk in the midst of those judgments and we are waiting. And in the scheme of the scriptures, we are waiting for the return of Christ. We are waiting for him to come back and consummate his kingdom. It's been inaugurated in his first coming and now we wait for it to be consummated. So we're, we're thinking of that time in our minds. There is a time of consummation, but remember, we live in the already, not yet, don't we? The, the consummation will come, but Christ has already come. We have a foretaste of all of our inheritance, a foretaste of all of those gifts, as spiritually we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So verse 1. Verse 1 is a song of trust, and that's verse 1 of the song that we're looking at. This will cover verses 1 through 6, the way I've itemized it here. Verse 1 is a song of trust. In 1 and 2, we see we live in a strong city in which the righteous are saved. Look at verse 1. In that day, that is the day that we read about in chapter 25 and 24, that day where, where, where God in Christ will swallow up death and he, will, he is the death eater. He is the one who both preserves his people and judges his enemies and that all of the arrogant Moabs of, of the world forever will be judged if they do not bow toward um, his son, Jesus Christ. So in that day is the day that that is consummated and finalized. This song will be sung in the land of Judah. So if we think of that, if it's consummated there, but we live in the already or not yet, is this a song for us today? It is a song for us today. It's a song for us today to realize that we are walking in the time that's being sung about. And and Isaiah is even going to show us this is what it looks like while we wait on this. So this is a song for us as well. We have a strong city here we have that, that constant contrast between the city of man, what I'm calling the city of man and the city of God. We also have the songs of the city of man and the songs of the city of God uh, closely tied to that. So here we are clearly singing the song of the city of God. We have a strong city. Now that's contrasted with the wasted city of 2410 and 25-2 that we've already met. Here is the opposite. Here is, here is our city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Isaiah 60 verse 18 says, For you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. 
So in this city, the, the picture is being shown that in the gates and, and, the, um, and the walls, the bulwarks of the city, it's a strong city with strong walls, and that is salvation. It is praise. So in the city is salvation. In the city is redemption in these pictures. So the command, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Okay, so the gates are open, but only one group comes in. Those are the righteous. And when we see that through the lens of Christ, we know that we are righteous in Christ because of his righteousness. We already know that in the new heavens and new earth, we've looked at these passages over and over in this section of Isaiah, that there will be no iniquity that comes in. The gates will only allow the, the, the kings of the nation who are repentant to bring in their wealth. We already know that no evil is in this city. That's why we can worship without. We have no tears or death or dying. It is the consummation of that kingdom. So open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Now we could spend a couple of days in that verse, couldn't we? You, you, that is Yahweh, you keep him, that is you and I and anyone who's listening, he keeps us in perfect peace. Literally, the text says, shalom, shalom, peace, peace. And that, that's, it's that superlative way in Hebrew of saying, repeating something twice to give it emphasis. The Hebrew is woefully short on adjectives compared to um, English and other languages. So we are kept in peace, peace. Who are those? Who are those defined by the him in the first phrase? Whose mind is stayed on you. Whose mind, everything that we're thinking and doing, our hearts and our minds are stayed, are focused on Yahweh. And we as New Covenant believers, we know that Christ is Yahweh as well. We've seen that demonstrated in, in Isaiah as well, all the way back as early as chapter 6. So when our minds are focused, are stayed upon, and look at how that's worded, whose mind is stayed. It is not, it's not you must stay. It is, it is the result of us being in the city as the saved ones. Our minds are stayed on Yahweh, on Christ himself. And you think, wait a minute. My mind isn't always settled on, stayed on, focused on, engaged with, passionate about Christ. There are times my mind wanders there are times that, that my mind is, is far from Christ. In fact, I, I, there are times that I even embrace sin instead of Christ. So am I not inside the gate? Am I outside of the gate if my mind is not always focused on him? Well, let me ask you something. When your mind is not, how's your peace? Is it peace, peace? Or is it just kind of... Pfft? You know this to be true. In your own walk, when you, when you are engaged with God, and I'm not talking about just you have your quiet time in the morning, all right? We can get so transactional about that quiet time that we think when our clock clicks over to that 15 minutes, we're good. Kind of wash our hands of it. We had quiet times. So we've been with Jesus today, and then we go off and we live our life as if we hadn't had any quiet time, and we don't even know who Jesus is. So I'm not saying quiet times are bad. I'm saying just don't get transactional with I had my quiet time, so the rest of my day is going to be good. God is pleased with me. God is pleased with us when our mind is stayed on his son. 
Because then we're pursuing righteousness. Then we're pursuing faithfulness. And we have to grasp this or the rest of this chapter will make no sense. And it's, it's clear, even from this, that this is God work, God's work in his people. It's a mark of being in Christ. Now, we have sin in the world, and we're still fighting sin. Amen? If you're not fighting sin, then you're not aware of sin in your life. Because there is sin to fight in every one of you. And so the way we fight that and the way our peace is perfect, the way our peace is solid and strong is when our mind is stayed on Christ, when we're meditating on his word, when we're looking at the world through Christ glasses, not, not just through our own wants and our own whims and our own desires, but in Christ's desires. You heard Noah and Abigail alluding to this already. They're not sure what their future is, but they're seeking. What Noah said, he's seeking wise counsel. He's praying to the Lord. He's trying to figure out what God, he knows God is moving and moving him toward calling and ministry, but he's not sure what that looks like. So what's he doing when he does that? His mind is stayed on Christ, on the word of God, on wise counsel of other people, on prayer, on the counsel of his family, the people who know him the closest. Our mind needs to be stayed on on him and then the peace is there and because we still have sin in this world we still are fighting sin remember owen's famous statement be killing sin or what sin will be killing you we're still living in this world so we're realizing that there are days that our peace peace is puh instead of peace peace and so we know the antidote we as followers of christ our minds are set on christ So quit going back down in the dungeon where Satan is all bound up and going back and presenting your members to him for unrighteousness. Pursue the true king of your kingdom. Pursue the king of the kingdom to which you belong. Look at verse 4. If this is true, God keeps those in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on them because he trusts in you. So so that's the final aspect of that that leads into trust in the Lord forever. If, if we, our mind is able to be stayed on Christ because we trust in him, we trust in him. Whatever he's doing, whatever he's going to accomplish, we trust because he's good and he's perfect and he's going to carry out his father's will. And the spirit is about the same task. And so we're trusting that whatever's going on around us, our minds are stayed on him because he's the one in charge of it all. So trust in Yahweh forever. For Yahweh, Yah Yahweh, Lord God, Yahweh is an everlasting rock. That wonderful picture in scripture that is used so many different times in places like Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Later in that same psalm in verses 31 to 33. For who is God but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. Keep that phrase in your mind. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me securely on the heights. Psalm 31.3, for you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, mark that, you lead me and guide me. Finally, Psalm 71.3, be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. 
You can find other references. Five times in Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32, he refers to God, to Yahweh as their rock. This is a common metaphor, and it does not mean just the the security, the, the solidness, but it means the lifted up, the exalted. You have set my feet upon solid ground. You've lifted me up out of the mire and set my feet on the rock. So we are trusting because God does not move. His will is going to be carried out. We are trusting in him because he is sovereign. We are trusting in him because everything that he does is good because he is good in character. No evil has overtaken him, nor will he be involved in evil. And if this is the God we worship, why on earth would we put our trust in anywhere else? And this is what Isaiah is telling to Judah, isn't he? Over and over, why trust in these other nations? God will bring them to the dust, redeem who he will, and he's going to do that so you trust in him. Don't put your trust in Assyria. Don't put your trust in Egypt or any other king. It's the constant reminder both to the people in Isaiah's day and our day. Well, we've moved into, I've forgotten my outline for a few moments. Forgive me for that. Thank you. Michael always keeps me straight. So we live in a strong city in which the righteous are saved, but also in this verse, we trust in Yahweh, our everlasting rock, who keeps us in perfect peace as we keep our minds stayed on him. Well, the third line of this first verse, we know God will humble the lofty city. Look at verse 5. Language we've seen before. For, notice that for there. This is, we are trusting in Yah, in Yahweh forever for Yah, Yahweh is an everlasting rock. For the reason that we know this in, in this part of Isaiah, for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height. So we have seen this humbling all the way through Isaiah, haven't we? The, the sins of the nations and the sins of God's people can always be boiled down to their arrogance, to their raising themselves up to take the place of God. And God says, I will not have that, and I will bring them down. We have all the language of loftiness and all the language of bringing down to the dust, and we see that again here. And now we're talking about this city for the for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city, so the arrogance in the city of man. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground. No doubt that it's raised, as in the R-A-Z-E-D, that it is put to the ground and is put into the dirt, cast it to the dust. Verse 6 says, the foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. So those who were formerly oppressed by the city of man, They're the ones who now God uses their feet in the metaphor to trample over them. Remember, last week we saw that God's God's hand of, of, um, how did we put it last time? His hand of blessing is on his people, but his foot of destruction is on his enemies. Remember, we saw that in the language where in verse 10 of the last chapter, for the hand of Yahweh will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place. Moab being all the picturesque of all the nations of the world. So this is that turning upside down that God does so often, right? This is the the turning upside down that God, when we look at the world and we see the way the world is compared to what God says the world will be and what God, how God sees the world, we're reminded of passages like 1 Corinthians 1. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let, no one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's a description of the city of man and the city of God. God will do what he pleases, and it will just shatter the arrogant pride of anything that any nation or people on earth that are turned against him and are planning and keeping their faith in their own strength in all of this. So that's verse 1, a song of trust. Verse 2 of this song is a song of hope while waiting. This is where the waiting from last chapter is brought forward and given more specific instruction for Isaiah's day. Now, in my outline, I've kept, O Lord, instead of Yahweh. I'm trying to read that the all caps Lord as Yahweh when it comes up to, to give that name of God that he called himself. But the devotional aspect of look in your text, and unless you're using something like the legacy standard, you will see, O Lord, in verse 8. You will also see, O Lord, beginning verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 16. This is the prayer that moves. Now, some people would say this is not part of the song that's that's sung in Judah anymore. This is commentary on the song. that for, For the reasons that we have this God who's trustworthy, then these are the things that can come out in your prayer. And it is that language of prayer, isn't it? It's the language of recognizing what God is doing, who God is and what he's doing, and how we are responding to it. So it's a song of hope while waiting. We'll see that early on. O oh Lord, while we wait, walking on the path of your judgment, we know you keep the path of the righteous level. That's the beginning of this song of hope um, in verse 2. Look at verse 7 of our text. The path of the righteous is level. Maybe your version says upright. I think that captures what's being shown. You make level the way of righteousness. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. So the path of the righteous, that's something that we see throughout Scripture, the path, the steps of the man, the path of the righteous. We see contrast in Scripture in many places, like Psalm 1, where the wicked are contrasted with the righteous. We see that in many places in Scripture, and we see that uh, throughout these verses, throughout the next 10 verses or so, 12 verses, this contract between the righteous who live in the city of God and the unrighteous who live in the city of man. But from this part of the story in, in Isaiah's uh, chapter 26, this is what it's like living as part of the city of God while you're living in the city of man, right? This is where we live now. We are residents of the city of God. We are citizens of the city of God, but we are also citizens here on earth walking as exiles, and that's the picture that we're looking at. The path of the righteous, and that's really the righteous one, the sing, it's singular, is level or upright. And then the Hebrew actually says more like, oh, upright one, you make level the way of the righteous. So some of our translations, I think, miss this connection in the grammar that the upright one makes the path of the righteous upright. In verse 8, in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. So judgments there, what, is, what are we talking about? I think what's being talked about here, because it's brought out in the context as we move forward, the judgments of God are the things he does every day. Just think of a, a judge sitting on a bench, 
who hears the case and then makes a judgment. It could be for the plaintiff. I mean, it could be for, it, it could throw the case out. But the judge is weighing all the evidence and making the judgment that then must be followed up. Well, God is constantly doing that. God is constantly doing what he wills to be done in his way as he chooses to do it. And every time he does something, he's making a judgment. Sometimes that is what our mind goes to when we see the word judgment. We think God acting in judgment against his enemies, and that is clearly going to be brought forth. But it's also a judgment when he saves his people. And because the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it, that when he saves these people, that people, that's a judgment as well. So we are living in the world where God is sovereign. That's what's being brought up. And he is the upright one who causes the path of the righteous to be upright. This reminds us of passages like Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. Psalm 37, verses 23 and then 31. The steps of a man are established by Yahweh when he delights in his way. Do you see the connection? The steps of a man or a woman are established by God when he delights in his way. When we're delighting in God, then we're walking in his blessings. And he's delighting in us. And those steps are planned before him. He's the one who plans those. And we'll talk about some verses that give even more emphasis to that from the New Testament when we see that everything that's going on is God's work in us. Everything is God's work in us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's our previous verse, right? Don't, don't, I mean, you're trusting in God because he is your rock. So you trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. This is what God does. I've used the illustration before. If you've ever been out in California, you see sometimes these big viaducts that carry water in the rainy season, and they're huge. But if it's not raining, it's just a skateboarder's paradise. That's all it is, is just concrete. And when we are walking according to the word by the power of the spirit, it's like we're walking in that. If you consider that a trough of God's blessing, we're walking in that. When we ignore the word and we're not walking by the spirit, we walk by the flesh, the, the, the Romans dichotomy that's given to us, when we walk by the flesh instead of by the spirits, we just crawl up that wall and we walk outside of the trough of God's blessings. And he will let us do that until he decides by his judgments to bring us back into the path of his blessings because that's what he does for his people. And so that's what's being shown here. It is, it is God himself, the upright one, who makes our path straight and makes them upright. And so in the paths of your judgment, O oh Lord, we wait for you. While you are working in the world, we're waiting for you. For whatever you decide to do, all the way until you send your son back and we're set up in the new heavens and new earth, we wait on you. Not for us, not for our wisdom, not for our desires, but for you and what you deem right and just. And that idea, I think, carries us through all of the O oh Lords. These are things that we're recognizing and waiting on as God is exacting his righteous works in the world. So the second, O Lord, beginning in verse, the second half of verse 8, O Lord, while we wait, our souls yearn for you alone while you teach the wicked righteousness. Look at the second half of verse 8. O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Our soul learn, yearns for you in the night, or my soul. We, we do switch from the, the 
the community to an individual singing this praise. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. So let's just contemplate this for a minute. While we're walking in this world, in the path of his judgments, we wait for him. And it's his name and remembrance that are the desire of our soul. So his name, remember the Old Testament concept of name, that's everything that we know about him, all of his characteristics. It's a pregnant term, especially when used like this. We're not yearning after a name. We're not, we're not being like the pagan babblers who just say a name over and over and over and over and over in order to gain a blessing. When we're talking about remembering the name of God, we're remembering his character, his attributes, his word, what he's done, what he is doing, his promises to us. We're remembering all of that. Your name and remembrance. This idea goes back to Exodus 3.15. Yahweh, God says, is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That's the idea that's being captured here that he's setting up. And the desires of our soul, his name and his remembrance are the desires of our soul. You see the longing that's here, the passionate longing that's here, This is why when people come to worship, they come passionate. They come expecting God to move. This is what you should do when you're reading the word and praying the word and and speaking about the word to other people. You should be passionate about his name and remembering everything that he's done. And it overwhelms us because God has created us with this passion. He's not created us as the frozen chosen. He's created us with a passionate outworking of him through us. This is why I talk all the time about sitting in and relishing and basking in who Christ is, just his character, what he has provided for you, how he has blessed you, what he's accomplished on your behalf, his beauty, his fullness, his sustenance. This is all what we are longing for. This is is what the psalmist captures in Psalms like Psalm 63. Uh, Go ahead and turn to Psalm 63. I'm not going to have you turn to many, but I want you to see this short psalm. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Doesn't that ring a different bell after last week? We call God our God. You are my God. You're not just God. You are my God. Even the psalmist has that completely ingrained in their writings. And this is a psalm of David. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You see the imagery, right? I I could be in the middle of a dry land with no water and I am physically thirsty, but what I want is you. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. So I can, I, can, I can die of thirst in the desert, but if I have you, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips 
When? When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your upright hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth and shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. There are other psalms, like Psalm 42, um, talking about uh, as, as, the, uh, as the deer pants by the waterway, so my soul pants for you. This is our life. And when we see the beauty of Christ himself, that kind of passion, exuberance, overwhelms our soul, and it works its way out of us. And that's what Isaiah is reminding us. Back to Isaiah 26. Look at verse 10. If uh, uh, The end of verse 9. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. So what are they learning? When God moves and he is working in the world, the earth sees it and they learn righteousness. They may not grab what they're learning. They, they may not believe it. Think of Romans 1. God has spoken about his character in creation, but when, when people suppress the truth with, with the lie, they are seeing these attributes of God, but they don't recognize them. And that's what's being described here. They learn righteousness. They should see what righteousness is, but look at verse 10. If favor or grace is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of the uprightness, in the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of God. So this is a picture of the wicked people, contrasted, this wicked people of the city of man, contrasted with those whose paths are kept straight and level and upright by Yahweh. So they see God's judgments, they see him working, they should learn righteousness, but what, they're, what they do is they still deal corruptly in the land, and it is the land of uprightness, because this is what God has said, do these things. And they do what they want to do instead. And the key, they do not see the majesty of the Lord. So see what we're building here. They do not learn righteousness. They do not see the majesty of the Lord. And we see this repeated. They do not see it. Verse 13 or 14, they will not live. They will not arise. We see this constant picture being brought to us. So we move into the third section of the second verse of this song. O Lord, while we wait, consume the wicked in the zeal of your people. Look at verse 11. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire from your adversaries consume them. So when we see the Lord's hand lifted up, we're used to seeing that stand for what? Judgment, right? That's what we're used to seeing. And here we are seeing that, but we're also seeing his hand lifted up. Remember, these are all the judgments of God. It's not just judgment of the wicked, but it is preservation and salvation of the righteous. And so when his hand is lifted up here, it's clearly both, is it not? Look at the text in verse 11. Your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. And then the prayer is, let them see your what? Judgment? Yes, but not judgment of them, but your salvation of us. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Now comes the judgment. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. Let them see what you are doing. 
We are praying that all the time, are we not? That people in the world would see God move no matter what his judgment is, no matter what he is orchestrating, we are trusting in him that what he's doing is righteous and good, and that's our testimony. Our testimony is not to get caught up in all the bad things of the world and lament it, although, granted, they're they lamentable, but as we lament, we are doing what? We're trusting in God, whose zeal is for his people, and everything he does do will bring judgment against the wicked in his time, or it will be to save the righteous. And judgment and salvation are always hand in hand. That's why Isaiah goes back and forth from judgment to hope. From judgment of the wicked to hope for the remnant. And that's also what's happening in this. Well, the next section. This is the fourth strophe of the second verse. Oh Lord, while we wait. And I'm carrying that waiting on his judgments all the way through. While we wait, we know you have ordained and provided for our peace. Here we go back again to where we started with peace, peace. Verse 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. There it is again. It's God ordaining it. And if God ordains it, will it happen? Yes. You have ordained peace for us. For you have indeed done for us all our works. Don't let that slide by. You see the glorious picture of the sovereignty of God and salvation? Of the sovereignty of God in everything that he does, everything that he does, he does for his own glory. And everything that we do are his works in us. This reminds us of passages that we learn in the New Testament, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That fits right in here, right? This is our walk. This is our path. He has prepared those good works because he has made the path of the righteous upright. And he is doing it. He's provided them all. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're working out our salvation. And behind that is what? God working. For his will and his good pleasure. Doesn't that make our work more joyful? Doesn't that make everything God commands us to do full of joy and full of success and full of victory? This is God working in us his plans as he keeps our path level and righteous. Hebrews 13, the benediction of of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant... Listen, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's sovereignty right here in this little verse stuck right in the middle of chapter 26. We find this beautiful treatment of the work of God in verse 12. For you have indeed done for us all our works. Anything God requires of us, he is providing in Christ. Anything he requires of us salvation for salvation is given to us in Christ. Everything that he requires of us for sanctification and glorification is given to us in Christ, and it is God's work. What a glorious thing it is to be on a path that God is keeping the path and us upright in the midst of his judgments. How encouraging is that? Let's move into the next part of this second verse. Oh, Lord, while we wait under 
the rule of mere men, we remember your name alone as you destroy them and enlarge your kingdom. Look at verse 13. O Lord our God, other lords, small l, beside you have ruled over us. So that's talking about all the nations that rule over us. It's talking about even us today. Anyone who rules over us, whether that's in the government or in where we work or anything, we, we have human people who have lorded over us. And we're talking in this context about the city of man. So these, in this context, are those who are not ruling according to God's plans. We have other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. That's pointing us right back to verse 18, all those concepts here, right? While we're serving under other lords that are not godly, we're remembering only nothing else but his name. That's what we're remembering. Verse 14, they are dead. That is those other lords who are who are not godly. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. Remember, we saw that term shades in chapter 14, talking about world leaders that were the shades that were in Sheol that were going to welcome the arrogant kings of the earth and welcome them by ridiculing them. That's the same word that's used here, spirits. So they are spirits. They, they will not arise. They're already dead. To that end, you have visited them with destruction. You wiped out all remembrance of them. See the connection of remembrance? You've wiped out remembrance of them, but we are remembering you. Why? Because he will never be wiped out. He is always eternally God to be remembered, eternally the sovereign one. So those other lords, we're not even going to remember them, but you, O Lord, constantly the only one in our remembrance. Verse 15. But you have increased the nation, O Yahweh. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged the borders of the land. So this is back in that Old Testament language. We're not talking about a piece of real estate here. We're talking about the kingdom advancing by God redeeming whom he desires to redeem. And he advances those borders and, and widens those borders as he sees fits to bring people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation into his kingdom. It was that way in the Old Testament as the nations come. At, remember chapter, chapter 2, the nations come and they seek Yahweh on his mountain and maybe he will show us how to live and what he wants from us. He expands the borders because anyone that God is calling, remember, he has done every work that's needed So he knows what people are bringing in and the kingdom is large enough for all of us. And look right in the middle, who gets the glory? You are glorified. And finally, in this second verse, oh Lord, while we wait, though we have failed to trust you and keep our minds stayed on you as we should, we know you will cause our dead to live and sing for joy. These little sentences are are my effort to summarize these verses that you might remember what we are doing in chapter 26 while we wait. So in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. And then this, this, this picture is of God's people doing what, trying to do what God has commanded him to do. Remember, they are the people to live righteously and all the nations would come to the mountain, Right? All the nations would come to the mountain because that's where Yahweh lived and it would be the righteousness of his people that would draw them in. 
The constant picture in the Old Testament. And Isaiah uses this picture like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So we were because of you. You You are disciplining us, Lord, because of our sin against you. And we've been working to do what you've called us to do, but we're sinning in the process. And verse 18 says, we were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. So they've had the birth pains, but there's been nothing. They've been judged by God, but there have been nothing. And and what is the nothing? Look at the second half of verse 18. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. It's really better they're not born. This idea of fallen can be used. In fact, it'll be used in the very next verse of giving birth. Just think of the Hebrew um, midwives when they were when they were overseeing the the uh, the birth and and they were commanded to kill all the babies. They had those stools, those birthing stools, and the babies would fall. And that's what's being captured here is this idea. So we have been your people. And you have put us under your judgment because we have failed and we have failed in our job of being the righteous before the world so that they come to you. We've given birth to nothing. And why is that? Because it's God who does everything. It's God who is the one who redeems the people. We know that for sure as we look into verse 19. Your dead shall live. This is probably Isaiah speaking to God, saying all the dead are yours. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. This is one of those four or five strong passages of resurrection in the Old Testament. And it's clearly speaking of this. The dead are yours. Now all the dead are going to come back to life. Amen? Everyone is going to come back to life. Everyone has eternal life. It's just going to depend. Are you going to have your eternal life with Christ or are you going to have your eternal life in hell? Eternal punishment, separated from God. All the dead are his. Here, it's his people. Those people that he's redeeming from every tribe and tongue, nation and people. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. We think of passages like Daniel chapter 2 and Ezekiel 37, Hosea 13. That this is these, Old Test- these are these Old Testament pictures uh, foreshadowing the resurrection And why is this so? Because he's the death eater, right? He's the one who swallows up death forever. He is the one who provides the righteousness for his people. And where it says your dew is the dew of light, those are metaphors for blessing and life. Your blessing is life. You're the one, God, who will raise the dead and give them their blessing of life. Well, these last two verses in the chapter, in the first verse of 27, I don't know if they're part of this song or not. They kind of fit with what we're learning. They fit with what's coming. But it's the reminder of what's going on. The judgment of the wicked and the salvation of God's people. So I've just said it's a song of salvation. We could say it's a song of of salvation and of judgment. Because that's what's happening. Look at verse 20. Come, my people... Be clear who we're talking about in these verses. My people, those who are the righteous ones, those who are on the path that I am leveling, those who are yearning and longing for God, whose spirit within them earnestly seeks God. My people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. What a wonderful picture. You remember what what Noah was told in the ark? 
They were to enter the ark and they were to shut the doors. Why? Because they were the redeemed. They were the righteous that God was redeeming. No one outside those doors would be redeemed. It's the same idea in the Passover when God said, go into your houses, cover the doorpost in the blood of the lamb and the death angel will pass over you. This is that, it's a constant picture of salvation for God and his people. It's not saying that you, because you live in this world, should go shut the doors to your bedroom and hide there. It's not saying that. It's using the picture that when God works against his enemies, you are preserved because you are his people, and he, with his own zeal, will accomplish your salvation. So you're hiding yourself for a little while until the fury has passed by. That same language of the Passover Verse 21 is what's happening outside. This is what God is doing to those who are enemies of his. For behold, Yahweh is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth. Why? For their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it. Remember the, the, the earth crying out for the blood of Abel, the, the creation of God. The earth knows, the dirt of the soil knows when there's been blood shed in an unrighteous manner. And that imagery is vivid in the Old Testament. And they will identify, this is the picture that's being given. Um, they, they will, the earth itself will identify the, the, un, the blood that's shed upon it and will no more cover its slain. God is working to preserve his people. God will come against his enemies. 27.1 brings that even in a more uh, gigantic way. In that day with the, uh, Yahweh with his hand and great, in that day, Yahweh with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. Remember, Leviathan is that, that sea creature that stands for everything evil and everything chaotic that, that no man can tame, and yet, the, according to Job, Leviathan God treats as a pet. God is the one who's in charge, even of the chaotic, evil, symbolic sea that is there. And then we have uh, Leviathan... Uh, described in other ways the fleeing serpent the twisting serpent he will slay the dragon that is in the sea so we're clearly talking about the final time when satan is thrown into the the lake of fire and everything is finished and the new heaven and new earth god will do this he will redeem his people and he will um, punish those who are against him always while we're waiting we're waiting on god to redeem people because he is waiting for their repentance He's patient so that they might come to Christ. Well, we have this Old Testament text, but this Old Testament text is full of Christ. You know, this week there was somebody that posted a comment on our Facebook page that we took off simply because I didn't want to engage someone online on our Facebook page, but accusing us of being a church who didn't preach Christ because we're spending too much time in Isaiah. We've been in Isaiah all this time. When are you going to preach Christ and him crucified? That was the essence of the, of the comment. And I, I did email the guy and tried to engage him. Of course, when it was just private email, he doesn't want to talk to me very much. He wants to have that conversation in public, which is something I wasn't going to do. But do you think it's a fair assessment that we don't preach Christ? Do you think it's a fair assessment that Isaiah is not preaching Christ? I mean, Isaiah is preaching Christ in ways that are so full and so colorful, and he does so just as well. Peace is only found in Christ. 
Christ is our rock. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified by faith in his son. Therefore, we have peace. That peace, peace only comes through Christ. And I'm, I'm just here to tell you today, we can marvel at the Old Testament all we want. But if we don't turn to Christ for that peace, we're no different than Jews who would turn their eyes away from Christ as not being the Messiah. Than anyone from any false religion who likes the idea of a God but doesn't like the idea of Christ who's come as a Savior. We are the people who are saved because of the work of Christ. The same as in Isaiah's day. They're looking forward to what Christ will do. We look back to what Christ has done. And if we take Christ out of the equation, then we are not Christian. We are justified by faith in Christ. So that today, if you want that peace, peace, if you're saying, listen, I've tried this obedience thing before. I've tried doing what the word says and obeying it, but it's just, it's, it's just work for me. It's just, it's just nothing but causing me, not peace, but just causing me consternation. You've taken Christ out of that picture. So come to Christ today. Christ is the one who has come according to the Old Testament scriptures, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, raised again, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, who has come to identify with his people in every way and yet not sin, so his righteousness is credited to our account. And when we're justified by faith in that work, then we have peace. So you can't do it without Christ. Today is when you turn to Christ. We're celebrating the birth of the Savior. He's a Savior. He's a baby in a manger, but he's a baby who comes to die and will come again as a warrior to bring us into glory with him. And the only ones that come in are the ones who are righteous, and no one will be righteous outside of Christ. No one. 1 Corinthians 10 Paul says, for I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So Isaiah is preaching Christ to us. Isaiah is lifting up the Savior that will come. Even though we're looking at this first section of Isaiah, we're not even in to those, what we would think, glorious sections that talk about the, the servant and all the servant song. Here it drips with the love of God for his people and the zeal of the Lord will do it because Christ has accomplished his work. You want peace? Come to Christ. You want peace, peace? Then you need to be mindset completely on Christ. Your mind stayed on him because you are a new creature now. The old has passed away. And now you have affection for God. So your mind is stayed on him. Crucify sin. Keep your mind stayed on him. Trust in him who is your rock. They were, he was the rock of Isaiah's time as well. And peace, peace will be ours. And it has nothing to do with the lack of conflict. It has everything to do with peace, peace in the midst of conflict. That's ours. It's simple. Crucify your sin. Trust in Christ and gain peace. It may be simple, but it's not easy some days, is it? This is why we come together to encourage each other that this is our life. This is for us. Let's pray. Father, how grateful we are that we have been granted peace through the blood of the cross. That being justified by faith, we have been brought into peace that the peace that we're given is 
is not protection from the world. It's protection within the world. It is that calm and steady walk on the path of your judgments that you keep righteous, that you keep upright because you are the upright one. And so it is our goal, Lord, to rejoice in what you have done, to rejoice with heart and soul and voice that you have sent your son to die for us and we are in him. We are crucified with him. Our resurrection is sure because his resurrection is sure. Our, our future is sure because he has guaranteed it to be sure and your Holy Spirit is guarding and keeping our inheritance. So make us a people of joy in the midst of chaos, of obedience in the midst of evil, and a people who is known by our love for Christ and not the world. For it is his name and remembrance that we remember daily, minute by minute. And we praise you for the peace, the peace, peace that you have given to your people. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.